Welcome to the Cannabis Data Science Meetup Group. As always, you're in for a treat today. Going to crunch a lot of cool new cannabis data. Finally got our paws on the Washington State data for the 2022. This is spanning, I believe, January 22nd or so of 2021 through the end of November, the beginning of December of 2022. We have almost a year worth of lab results. I'll share these with you. I've been curating them. There's maybe between 48 and 52,000 lab tests, lab samples. That's almost 2 million analytes that were tested. Really exciting. One of the largest sets of lab results, and it's a complete population which makes it real fruitful for analysis. Instead of having a potentially non-random sample, we have each and every lab test that was conducted in Washington State, which gives us a lot of statistical power. Without further ado, I'll go ahead and just give you a brief presentation of what I'm interested in researching. As we may know, survey data may not be the most reliable data in the world because it relies on people to self-report. There's a lot of literature in psychology and in economics that suggests that people may not necessarily have the incentive to be honest with what they tell you. So what they teach you in economics is look at people's actions rather than what they may say. People's actions would hopefully will reveal their preferences. So in this case, we're interested in, well, we're interested in many things. One of the things we started talking about in the past few weeks were contaminants. We started looking at microbes. In the past, we've looked at residual solvents. Well, now that we have 2022 data, pesticide testing was mandated in Washington state in April of 2022. Before that, other states have pesticide testing mandated, California, Oklahoma, perhaps, I want to say Massachusetts. Most states already had pesticide testing mandated, but as we know, we don't have the best access to data in these states. So for example, in California, the best we know of what pesticides are cultivators using is this self-reported survey. As we can see here, there's only 59 growers. So this leaves us wanting for more information. Well, this was four years ago. It's been some time now. We've got some new data and some new techniques Let's see if we can't, can't replicate this per se, but let's see if we can't come close to replicating a analysis of pesticides being used in cannabis. So as always at the Cannabis Data Science Meetup Group, we're here to get our hands on the actual data. As I said, I was curating these data points for a cannabis data project. This is open source and you can get your hands on this too. There's one thing that I want to iron out and then I'll get this sent to you. Essentially what I want to iron out when I first did the first pass on my first pass, just curated data from January to the end of November. And so it only curated around 48,000 unique inventory items that were tested. In the second pass, I collected all the lab results from January to December 7th. And that puts us around 52,000 lab results. So these it's not 100%, uh, the samples don't overlap perfectly. So I want to rerun this and get a better merge of this data for you. However, right now we do have 48, more than 48,000 inventory items that were tested. So this can get us a good start at the very least. Okay, well, first things first, let's look at this data. So what do we have here? We have, so these are the different types of products that were tested in Washington state in 2022. As we can see, Flower lots were the bulk of testing with just shy 
of 25,000 lots of cannabis flower being tested. Second, hydrocarbon concentrates. This appears to be the most popular type of concentrates with more than 6,000 inventory items tested. Surprisingly, edibles were high, higher on this list than I anticipated. And then as you can see, there's different types of products for sure. However, for today, I thought maybe we could just look at the bulk, the flower lots and the hydrocarbon concentrates, just to, to pick two categories, just to keep things relatively simple. This can be generalized to more constant to, to more sample types, but this is a nice starting point. Okay, so what are we after? Well, what does this data even look like? I'll just show you um, a, a random sample here, just to show you all the, the cool data points we have. Okay, so there's a lot of data for each of these. I'll just show you some of the cool things that we know. And um, also I may have mislabeled this as the retailer. This may actually be the producer. So I want to go through and double check this. We know the name. So this was cherry sorbet. Do we know, and we know the inventory type. So this is cherry sorbet flower. This one coincidentally failed lab testing. We've got the results here. So we should be able to dig in to the results to see why it failed testing. And then this one may have failed for, for microbes because there were no pesticides or residual solvents detected. So long story short, we've got the, some nicely formatted data. We'll just keep it visual. So I'll just show you real quick the various pesticides that were detected in cannabis flower in Washington state in 2022. As you can see, piperinol butoxide takes the lead with more than 600 detections. Pesticides are notoriously hard to pronounce. And as I mentioned in prior weeks, peculiar names, it, there may be more magic to the show than one may think. So for example, I've heard a chemist make the point that one of the reasons why these chemicals may have odd names are for comprehension and memory retention. It's going to be hard for you to recognize, say, and remember imid chloripid. And I probably mispronounced that. And just to kind of show you a bit about um, these these pesticides here. Um, I thought I had one of them pulled up. Uh, yeah, here's piperineal butoxide. And this was what I was searching for in the prior week. So this, I think, is, oh, what's the name of this? A molecular structure. So this is a way that you can depict chemical compounds. So as I was telling you, um, doing my best to read up on organic chemistry and probably know less than your average high school's chemistry student. But from what I'm gathering, right, so this is just a simplified diagram at each. Okay, so this is organic chemistry. And so the fundamental building block of organic chemistry is carbon. So this is what life forms are made out of and it's real interesting how life works because you just have these fundamental building blocks you've got carbon which are essentially depicted and um, from my understanding uh, by by these various lines i'm going to butcher the interpretation of this but from my understanding the, these lines represent carbon bonding to oxygen and um, so instead of having or carbon bonding to hydrogen uh or oxygen okay 
like I said, I, I'm butchering this. Okay, well, I'm not going to be able to to think of this on the fly, but um, but here you can see the the white molecules. I forget if it's hydrogen or oxygen aren't aren't depicted. It must be hydrogen, I think. Yeah. So the yes, we can see this is H. See here at the end, this is H three. So three white balls and one gray ball. So I think that's three hydrogens and a carbon. And then the red must be the oxygen. So here you can see the red depicted as O's. So long story short, you've got these organic compounds and they come in various degrees of complexity and, you know, add a few more hydrogen molecules or carbon molecules and these can turn into to different substances so i think that's also part of the the magic that's happening behind the curtain in that people may develop slightly different pesticides so they may develop a pesticide that's similar to trifloxystrobin but it's slightly different They'll give it a different chemical name, say trifloxystrobin's regulated, the new molecule is not, it can be a way to still use pesticides while avoiding detection. So I've heard pesticide screening be described as a cat and mouse game, where the, and it's not just cannabis cultivators, this is, I think, a, could be an issue in agriculture in general. People engaged in agriculture, of course, we've talked about this in the past, contaminants are of top concern. So they're always chasing new innovative ways to fight off pests and disease and molds and fungi. And so they're coming up with new chemicals. These chemicals are then being studied by toxicologists and then regulators will put limits on these and then say they'll be screened for in cannabis um, and then people will start using a new substance if they're if they're failing a lot so so this is just something to watch for so okay so we haven't done too much yet except just describe the data and that's often a useful first step for example, this data, it's all publicly available and sitting right there in front of us. However, it took a good bit of curation simply to be able to count the number of pesticides that were detected. Well, not only can we count them, but we also know what type of product. So right now, this isn't differentiating between, say, flour and hydrocarbon concentrates. Well, I'm going to show you a nifty way that you can model this data. Okay, so we've talked about how cultivators may want to view the risk, the chance of failing as a business risk and to factor that in. So for example, if you're cultivating flour and you value your, your flour at, um, I forget what the going rate is, but it's $1,000 a pound or $2,000 a pound. So that's your value of a pound of flour. Let's, I think, they change the flower lot sizes and in fact i i saved them but the old ones were uh, a five pound lot and so i think they changed them and i think some lots are up to 50 pounds now but let's say you've got a five pound lot each pound will be parsimonious and say each pound is valued to you at one thousand dollars so a five pound lot has a value to the cultivator of $5,000, okay? Well, if we were just going to do a simple count here, we know, let, let's just do a back of the envelope 
here real quick, right? So there's 600, give or take. Um, actually, let's find the exact number just to um, uh, pesticides and perennial epoxide. Okay, 644. Okay, well, there's only, well, not only, there's 48,000 observations and 644 of them failed for piperennial butoxide. So if you were just going to do a simple back of the envelope calculation, you could just say, oh, well, I know how many failed for piperennial butoxide. I know the total amount tested. Well, that's around 1.3% that are failing for piperennial butoxide. So if you have a $5,000 value flower lot and your risk is $66. So that's a $66 cost, expected cost of pesticide screening. And you know, so $66, you know, out of 5,000, right? It's, it's around, you know, right? We, back, we backed out the, the failure rate there. So pesticide screening imposes around a 1.3% cost. Uncondition this is an unconditional cost. We haven't conditioned it on anything. We haven't conditioned on the product type. We haven't conditioned on where the grower may be located. So this is completely unconditional. The cultivator has an unconditional risk of 1.3%. If they're growing a $5,000 lot, that's a $66 cost. It may not seem large, but margins are tight in the cannabis industry. And this adds up. So, for example, if all of a sudden maybe maybe you're selling not just five thousand dollars worth of product, but maybe you're selling five hundred thousand um, dollars worth of product here. Well, all of a sudden now that's a six sixty five hundred dollar cost, six thousand five hundred. That's non negligible. So. You know, if if say your you know your revenue is five hundred thousand dollars, that's a it's a it's a decent sized cost. And if all of a sudden you're faced with this cost, and it's going to be lumpy, so that's assuming this is all evened out. Well, this is going to be a lumpy cost in that you may not fail pesticide screening for a long time, and then one month you fail and you have to now bear that entire cost in that one month so so this is what i'm trying to drive home in that just want to to bear in mind that there is a cost and you can minimize this cost so for example this is unconditional maybe we can find some conditions that may lower your probability of failing pesticide testing. And maybe you can manage those conditions. In economics, we learn that profit maximization is equivalent to cost minimization. And that's what I often try to stress to people in business. So many times people are worried about maximizing their profit, just trying to get as most money as most revenue as possible and they don't take into consideration their costs and i, I can see people run run a stry with this um run awry with this run astray with this and an effective way to achieve the same result would just be to have a laser focus on keeping your costs to a minimum while engaging in as much business as you can. Cool, so I, I've droned on enough about that. Let's get back to, to some charts and actually some cool statistics here. So now I'm going to introduce conditional statistics. And that's, these are the two things I tell you with, right? Start with simple statistics. So these are counts. These are actually conditional 
counts, right? These are counts by analyte. So those are conditional statistics. A count, a total, is a statistic. A count by an analyte is a conditional statistic. They're amazingly powerful, interesting, and simple. And then you can just keep adding conditions. Well, as I alluded to earlier, perhaps product type matters. Well, how are we going to model this? The way I've encouraged people to go about modeling simple data in the past is binary, zero, one. This is really going back to the basics in statistics. I'll be loading all the, the binary statistics episodes shortly, so that those will be coming. This is just a clever way of modeling the data that makes it, that opens it up for, for clever, clever statistical exercises. Okay, so what are we looking at here? So we're seeing that almost a little less than 48,000 of these samples had no piperineal butoxide detected. And a little more than, something went awry in my counts here, but I'm just going to power on. And I want you to encourage you to, go, to come back through and double check my work like a good scientist would. And so 600 of these are coded as one, meaning that piperineal butoxide was detected. Fantastic. Well, when you have simple binary data, zero or one, you can estimate a probit model. And this would basically predict the probability of being zero versus the probability of being one conditional on your explanatory variables. This is exactly what we want. We want to know the probability that piperineal butoxide will be detected conditional on the sample type. We already know that the unconditional probability of piperineal butoxide being detected is around 1.3%. Well, what's the probability in flour? What's the probability in hydrocarbon concentrates? You could do this again by just taking another conditional count. I'm simply introducing the probit model to you as a new, well, we've already discovered this tool, but it's another tool that you can use to, can, to calculate conditional probabilities. And it's a tool that we can load up with explanatory variables. And I will save the big, the big takeaway at, for the end of the day. And I'll tease that the magic is going to happen with those explanatory variables. Now, I'm isolating a subsample here. So essentially, I just want to look at flower lots and hydrocarbon concentrates. Why? Just to keep things simple. There's no reason why we couldn't look at more inventory types. These were just the the two the two most frequent inventory types and so just wanted to to use them for a demonstration okay enough of me rambling on let's estimate this model so it's real simple to do well and this is actually why i encourage you if you really want to cut your teeth programming and learn statistics as intimately as possible then I would challenge you to code a probit model because here we're just using one from the stats model package and we can do it in one line of code. That's phenomenal because now we can add this to our favorite programming algorithms and we could calculate thousands upon thousands of probit models um, in a short fashion. But this is a, it's a it's a useful exercise. You'll have to to hit say Wikipedia or your favorite st statistics textbook, and it's a non 
trivial task, but it's it's completely in in the the realm of possible. And if you're you're up for the challenge, it's more of an exercise, right? Because at the end of the day, I would recommend to use the stats models probit model because one thing I love about open source is when it's used by many, many thousands and thousands, perhaps millions of people, then it becomes robust. And perhaps little quirks get discovered that you couldn't figure out by yourself. So probably the stats models probit model would probably be more robust than any probit model that you may be able to write. Yeah, you could probably write a, a better one, I'm sure. But as I said, it's a good exercise in both programming and statistics. And you can then double check it. You can basically double check that the probit model you wrote is equivalent. So that's just a tangent on programming. But here it is. And I'll just talk about the model and then show you the actual takeaway. So when you estimate a probit model, okay, so we've got our 30,000 observations, our dependent variable. Remember, that is going to be a binary, zero or one, mostly zeros. And in fact, that's actually a problem. And there may be better models out there. That's often a criticism in that if your zeros and ones aren't balanced, then that can lead to, to issues. But this can at least give us a good start. Okay, so what do we have here? Well, we've got various coefficients here. And don't read too much into the coefficients alone because the, the probit model, you actually have to evaluate it. The one thing that you can see is that this has a positive sign on it. So right out of the gate, we're thinking, okay, hydrocarbons may actually be detecting, we may be detecting piperineal butoxide more often in hydrocarbon concentrates. Okay, well, how much? Well, guess what? It's actually super easy. So the way you go about this is you find the what's called marginal probability of detecting for one category, and then you would do it for the other. And if these weren't categorical variables, then you would use the mean. So you would say, oh, what would be the probability of, say your, your regressor was number of plants? What would be the probability of failing for piperineal butoxide given the, say, average number of plants? Um, and so you can find uh, different mar marginal probabilities. Okay, so enough of me talking. Let's look at the numbers here. So we've got, okay, what's the marginal probability of flower? Well, here, I'll just plot all of this out um, because the, the, this way we'll have a nice visualization while I'm talking about it. So, so all I did here was evaluate the model at the, the mean of each of the groups. Um, so here, flower, we've just got a constant and hydrocarbon concentrates is always zero. That's a dummy variable. And then of course, hydrocarbon concentrates has a constant and hydrocarbon concentrates is always one. So really simple to calculate the marginal probabilities for dummy variables. It, as I said, it's a bit more complicated if you're, say you want to find the average marginal probability, or I may be butchering my language here, but if you, if you want to find the marginal probability of a continuous variable, I want to say you, you use the mean. Anywho, let, let's just go ahead and, and interpret the results here because I think this is an interesting takeaway that's non-obvious. If you talk to a chemist, I kind of wanted to, to bounce this off of our good friends over at MCR Labs to see if this may be in line with what they've observed. So if any of you want to, to reach out to MCR Labs and see, hey, is this what you've observed or something similar with piperineal butoxide in cannabis? Because 
I think this is an interesting insight that is non-obvious and requires a good bit of data curation as well as clever conditional statistics to get to. And I think these are the types of insights that people in the cannabis industry could really benefit from, and they may be completely ob oblivious to the fact that they can get their hands on these statistics. So what is, what is this? So this is now the conditional probability of piperennial butoxide being detected in your cannabis flower. Ooh, I also want to, to walk back that cost I was talking about earlier. This is just the probability of piperennial butoxide being detected. You may not necessarily fail quality assurance just because it's detected. So depending on what the, what the cultivator's internal quality control is and the state limits, they may not actually face the 1.3% risk of losing the batch outright, but it at least gets you a, you thinking, thinking in this ballpark. So, so this is um, sort of my, my, my main insight for today that, as I said, this may be apparent to chemists in the laboratory, but may not be more obvious to other people. Piperennial butoxide is detected at a hot, at a higher rate in hydrocarbon concentrates than in flower lots. Well, why is this? One thing that's happening is, well, in hydrocarbon concentrates, yes, you are concentrating THC in other cannabinoids. Well, if you look at, and this is why the chemistry is mighty, mightily important. Look at this. The boiling point of piperennial butoxide is 356 degrees Fahrenheit. What is the boiling point of tetrahydrocannabinolic acid? I want to say we can find the boiling point, 180 degrees C. Okay, yes. So check this out. So THC boils at 155 degrees Celsius. So that's the point where THC turns into vapor. Well, if you're trying to keep THC as a liquid, a hydrocarbon concentrate, then you'd want to keep the temperature less than that when you're when you're going through extraction. Well, if the temperature is less than 160 degrees Celsius at all times, piperennial butoxide does not boil off. So that means in this process, the idea is other compounds are being boiled off. So compounds you don't want, you're say, let's say you raise the temperature to 150 degrees Celsius. Well, a lot of the plant matter, I think, is going to start boiling off. You're going to have other solvents boil off. Well, guess what? Your piperennial butoxide will remain. And so what hap ends up happening is the not only are you concentrating THC into hydrocarbon concentrates, you're also concentrating any high high boiling point pesticides that may be in the product. So this may be a reason that concentrates have a higher detection rate. Another reason is perhaps flour that is more contaminated is more likely to be processed into concentrates than flour that's not. There, there's a lot going on here. However, I just wanted to, to point this out that if you are, say, a processor, then you may want to be a bit more concerned about piperennial butoxide detection 
than a cultivator. Um, and just, you know, keep this in mind as you're factoring out your costs. As we pointed out, it's not the the greatest cost in the world, but you know, this is this is getting up there. You know, this is now around let's say you have to de destroy your batch if it's detected because maybe that's just your internal policy. Well, now you're you're facing that around 2% of the time. That's it's going to pose a, a non-negligible cost at that at that stage. And so so just just something to think about. And then basically what's my my big takeaway from this? This was really just an exercise because as I said, you can reach out to MCR labs or your favorite chemist in the cannabis space. And chances are they'll be able to tell you, oh yes, hydrocarbon concentrates. Yes, we detect pesticides at higher rates than in flower. Yes, piperennial butoxide. It, it may or may not be the, the most detected in other states, but yeah, chances are they may have seen that. So this may not be anything new under the sun, but this is a new tool that you can use for predicting the probability of pesticide failure. And that is exactly what I've been wanting to study for years. So probably since about 2018 or so, the same time this study came out, and it may not be a coincidence, but, but yes, yeah, since around 2018, I've been deathly interested in what is what pesticides are being used in cannabis, what's the detection rate, what are the amounts being detected, and what are the factors that are causing pesticide contamination. And a hypothesis of mine that I've wanted to explore since 2018, but we just haven't had the data, is, is proximity to, say, agriculture or industry a potential factor in failing for pesticide testing? We have heard about pesticide drip in the past. And something that I'm interested in is, let's say, is your risk of failing pesticides location dependent? So depending on where cultivators are in the state, are some of them at higher risk than others for failing for pesticide screening? And so some of the conditions I wanted to look at were, say, proximity to a dairy farm or various types of farms. So people farm cherries and apples and all sorts of different commodities in Washington state. And what you could do is you could calculate those data points. So you, we know where the cultivators are with latitude and longitude. And then you could calculate the distance to say the nearest dairy farm or the nearest road, the nearest metropolitan area and just try to look at all the different geographical factors that may be at play and many of them may be insignificant there may be no significant relationship on failure rate but as i said we you know we're looking for something obvious here and this piggybacks on the lesson of last week when you're working with statistics Differences should hopefully be readily apparent pretty quickly out of the gate. And so here, pretty quickly out of the gate, we see, okay, hydrocarbon concentrates, flower lots. It looks like there's something structurally different about pesticide detection in these two. Well, now is the, the fun because now we get to hunt for other explanatory variables that may be significant. And this is how you could potentially get a paper published, which would be quite an interesting feat. So I think last year there was thousands of papers written on cannabis. And that shows you there's one, a lot of interest and demand for this type of study. So. Perhaps if you think of a novel topic, 
then this is something that you could write about and that people could study. Or if you don't, if you don't want to research, maybe you can think of a business model or a business endeavor to, to profit off of this information. So say you, you do figure out some structural risk for failing for pesticides, well, maybe you could reach out to all the cultivators who are at high risk and just let them know. So you say, oh, you know, maybe being close to a dairy farm puts you at high risk of failing for pesticide X. Well, you could reach out to all the cultivators near the dairy farm and just let them know like, hey, you may want to be on the lookout for this pesticide. Um, that's maybe not the best uh, uh, business endeavor ever, but I'll let you let you brainstorm and think of them. But, but long story short, th that's what I have been wanting to study, as I said, for almost four years now. What are the geographic factors that may affect pesticide detection or pe uh, failing for pesticides? And th there may be none, right? That's really a good null hypothesis, right? So uh, the null hypothesis would be not no geographic forces matter, right? Uh, being close to a dairy farm doesn't matter. Being close to a metropolitan area doesn't matter. So we would start with the null hypothesis of no effect and then see if we can't find evidence that any of these places may have a statistical effect on say failing for pesticides. So hopefully you found that interesting. I'm not sure if, if this is of widespread interest to people, but this was something that has been on my mind for a handful of years. And now we finally have the data that we can actually answer this question. So here's a start. We looked at one factor sample type. Well, now let's expand this, right? And that's the nice thing about the probit model. We can just pack in explanatory variables. So now is the fun time, right? And so this is, as I said, what statisticians, this is how statisticians have fun, a fun conversation at lunch. You just start talking about, oh, you know, what explanatory variables may matter? And do we have data on those? And if we don't have data on those, how can we proxy those? Or how can we measure that? Or how can we measure this? Um, so now, so now that you've got a good research question, you can you can start to brainstorm all the factors that are important. I, I'll go ahead and conclude it there. I I feel like um, I'm rambling for for the amount of material that we've covered. The goal, or not the goal, the insight of the day that I thought was fruitful. So last week's insight I think was helpful, but maybe not the most motivational ever. Um, but as far as statistics goes, uh, it was important. Well, this this insight of the day is is super motivational, and that is persist. Just keep trying, and it's going to be surprising how long some things take before they pay off. And what am I talking about? Well, I want to share with you some big news. So, as you know, Canlytics writes open source software. One of the tools that we built was a open source software development kit for integrating with the metric API. And metric is the cannabis traceability software that is used in the vast majority of states that have legalized cannabis. And a long time ago, many moons ago, in 2021, so this was in March of 2021, I wrote this metric software development kit and got Canlytics verified in a handful of states to interface with metric. Well, it takes a while for things to proliferate on the internet. And lately the metric software development kit has been getting a lot of interest. And finally, Canlytics has contracted to integrate a company with the metrics API. And this is really exciting, big news. One, uh, just personally, it's, 
a new contract, but two, this is a, a demonstration of this open source software being used in the wild. And I've teased a lot that, yes, I think the, this is software that you can use to make money. And I think I'm finally demonstrating that. So the contract is specifically just to help the person use this software. And this is one thing I learned from someone that if you show someone how to do something difficult, then often they'll pay you to do it. Um, and so that's one of the, the reasons that we put out this software is we think this is a useful tool. We're happy to show people how to do it. And then if they need help using it, we're, we're more than happy to help. So this, this was sort of big news I wanted to share with you and just let you know that, hey, this metric software development kit is actually quite useful. I'm making money off of it. Hopefully this company gets value out of it. And as I was talking about with the probit model earlier, the more and more people that use it, the more robust it becomes. So I would actually benefit if you use the open source software to make money, because hopefully if you use it and other companies use it, hopefully the software becomes more and more robust Maybe you find something that needs to be ironed out and you, you can or cannot share um, if, if, if you wish, but if you decide to share, then hopefully I can improve the system. Hopefully that'll make your life better. Hopefully it'll make my life better. And we can just keep going back and forth, just incremental progress, win-win and value for value. It's taken a long time to get to this stage, and I want to thank you all for your support to get here. Every dollar mattered. I couldn't be here without literally each and every penny. Each and every penny got put to unbelievably good use. I want to thank you. Thank you for your eyes, your ears, your eyeballs contributing to Canlytics and the Cannabis Data Science Meetup Group. Because of you, we've covered an enormous amount of ground and I think are really starting to reap the benefits of the open source software and really start to provide people with value. So just want to, to give you that little bit of motivation that if you don't at first succeed, try, try, and try again. Awesome. I know it was me standing on the pedestal for most of the time today. So hopefully you at least found it interesting. Just in the, the last couple of minutes, do you have any thoughts, comments, questions, Candice, before we call it a start of the day? Um, that is just fabulous, fabulous presentation and coding. And um, uh, it, that's interesting too. Canlytics is interfacing with the metric uh, API and Massachusetts uses metric. And also, too, I do believe that uh, MCR Labs, uh, Yasha, and Isaac would be very interested in um, really how you uh, nailed down that, uh, you know, concentrates, right, can also have concentrates of pesticides. That's concerning. You know, as someone that did a lot of RSO in the beginning, right, I think that might fall under hybrid, uh, under that product type, right, category. And um you know, and, and those are patients that are doing that RSO and we don't want, you know, high pesticides. So amazing, Keegan, you're always uncovering just good stuff. So thank you for everything. I love your enthusiasm, Candice. And just to continue piggybacking on that, yes, Canlytics actually is verified with metric in Massachusetts. So that demonstrates that the software can be used in Massachusetts. And as you pointed out, the, this analysis hopefully will be quite valuable to people because personally, I just try to limit my consumption of foreign chemicals that I don't understand. So for me, everything else held constant, I would actually prefer the flower with no pesticides detected 
versus one with hyperennial butoxide detected, even if it is below the, the limit for the state. And so this is why I argue that if people work to make their lab results accessible to people, then this could actually be a selling point for you. People are always saying, what can we compete on besides THC concentration? Well, guess what? If there were two products, one was 18% THC, the other was 20% THC, and one clearly had on the label no pesticides detected, and the other one, hyperennial butoxide was detected, it would be a no-brainer for me which one I would choose. And this is a personal preference. Everybody has different preferences. But if you're looking for a factor to compete on, then as a cultivator, you may want to really stress the fact if you don't have any pesticides detected in the flower that, yes, there's no pesticides detected in this sample or in this flower. And other cultivators may not necessarily be able to make that claim because as we were showing today, there's a, a, a non-negligible, and that was just one pesticide. There's other pesticides too. So a non-negligible amount are getting detections, even if they may be below the limit. So say you're a concentrate provider, this could be a really big selling point for you. Well, also too, you know, maybe you want to look for pesticides with a lower boiling point than THC, right? And, uh, you know, just to get it chemically out of the product, right? Even though people might still want full disclosure that maybe no pesticides are used, but never mind. <laughs> Well, you think you're thinking like a chemist, and one would hope that the processors. And I've met some really, really, really smart processors. I imagine a lot of them are taking this into consideration. However, we've talked in the past about asymmetric information exists, and we can't pretend it doesn't. So there may just be processors who aren't aware that boiling points of different pesticides matter. So, so one thing is just helping people access the information. So just do they even have the information to, to start with? That's, a, that's a, a, good, a good piece. And then actionable insights. So, so we're working on those. We don't have too much that you can act on yet, except, you know, take into consideration the risk of flour versus concentrate. But I, I think there's a lot of doors that have been opened simply by curating this data. So now you can take this data, put it in a database and do a quick query. So now all of a sudden, if you see a product, you can now know if there were any pesticides or say residual solvents detected. So I think this could be something that could help out consumers, could help out regulators, help out the labs, help out the cultivators and processors themselves, could even potentially help out retailers. Maybe retailers don't even know to look for this. So th that's, what, that's what we're all about. And that's what we love to do is find useful cannabis analytics that can help as many people as possible in the cannabis industry or the cannabis space. And as I said, this was a small start, but we're all about one molecule by a time. So literally today we looked at yet another molecule, piperennial butoxide, and I think we moved the ball forward, even if it was just one molecule. So I'm happy with today. Um, so thank, thank you, thank you, thank you for coming. And keep advancing cannabis data science.